0: Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globe-trotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick, Now, on to the show.
1: Hello, and thank you for joining me for the 78th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is decoding your risk fingerprint. I'm joined by Michelle Wooker. She is the author of You Are What You Risk, The New Art and Science of Navigating an Uncertain World. The publisher is Pegasus Books. Michelle's third book, The Gray Rhino, How to Recognize and Act on the Obvious Dangers We Ignored, has moved financial markets, shaped government policy and business strategies around the world, and inspired a popular TED Talk. She's been honored as a young global leader of the World Economic Forum and as a Guggenheim Fellow. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Delighted to be here. Wonderful. So start us out with a brief overview of the book, if you don't mind.
0: So the book is really about how to how to think about risk and our relationship with it. And it focuses on what I call your risk fingerprint, which is the set of influences that are behind the choices that you make about the risks that you take. And many of these we don't even think about. Uh, It could be your innate personality, the experiences that you've had, the big shocks to your life, uh, the way you were raised, your parents' risk attitudes, the people around you and it can also be the habits that you have when you think about the risk that you're about to take. And also things that, that really blew me away, like whether you're a smoker or not, uh, the colors around you, the tempo of the music you're listening to, and even whether you had spicy food to eat in the last few hours. So when you look at all of those influences on why you're taking the risks that you are and avoiding others, it gives you a huge lens into who you are and A tremendously powerful tool for managing relationships in your life, for making better decisions. And it's an amazing tool for for personal growth, but also for business when you're dealing with your, your team or your clients or your investors. It gives you so much insight into yourself and into the people around you. And it often opens a path forward when you think that the door is closed. So it's, it's just, it's an amazing tool. We, we make 35,000 decisions a day about, and each one of them is really a risk. It's a choice. Every choice is a risk. Every risk is a choice. But we don't think about things in terms of risk. But once you start using this lens, it pretty much turbocharges every decision that you make.
1: Sure, it makes sense to me. Also, of course, uh, the amygdala, which is a very old part of the brain, is essentially a a anxiety button. And so every uh, choice, every risk involves anxiety, uh, trying to abate it to some degree or another, or maybe indulge it, depending on the person. So early in the book, you mention all sorts of risk influences, and you've kind of gone over some of those. Uh, but it's quite the laundry list from demographics to upbringing, career choices, religion, culture, geography, I mean, it is a long list. Uh, I want to go at that in two different ways. First is maybe are there two or three here that from the research would seem to be, if you rank them the the most significant, that would be the first place I'd start. Well, I think the first
0: one is is really self-awareness about the decisions you're making and why. And second, it's how you relate to the risks of the people around you. We've certainly seen that in the last year and a half during the pandemic. Uh, that the decisions of of other people about risk-taking have really influenced what I do. You know, for example, it was months before I went downtown during the pandemic and I took the bus down. It's this beautiful view along Lakeshore Drive and everybody wore masks. I felt comfortable. It was no problem. And then I took the L or, you know, subway train public transport here in Chicago. And, oh man, that did not happen again for many months afterwards or, you know, crowds of people blabbing, blabbing, blabbing with the, the mask hanging down under their chin. And there was once I had to change cars four times. And, and so it's really important to understand how the behavior of the people around you affects your, your you know, what's, what's happening with the risks that you're taking. And similarly, how your own behavior affects the risks that other people are subject to.
1: Okay, no, that makes sense to me. I'm going to ask a facetious question. So I'm 62, and in the last five years or so, to my surprise, I've stopped listening to uh, rock and roll and progressive country music, and I listen mostly to classical music. What does that possibly say about my risk profile?
0: Well, um, you know, what says about your risk fingerprint is, you know, I think that you're you're liking things that are. Uh, not going to increase your uh, uh, your heart rate and your blood pressure so much. <laughs> you know, there's some research showing that you know up tempo music uh, makes people more risk seeking, and and there's a bit of a chicken and the egg to a lot of this. It's like are you are you choosing the more chill music? because you want to take fewer risks or is it the other way around? And then, you know, of course it depends on the, the kind of classical music that you're listening to. I mean, some of it's considerably more uptempo, or at least there's, there's a couple of, of moments, you know, and then the finales with all this you know, crescendo. <laughs> so you're actually going to have different uh, heart rates and, and, and uh, neurobiological responses during course of the music. But, but there really is a, you know, a chicken and the egg element to this, you know, the choices that you make in turn, affect the choices that you make in the future. It just goes to show how important your environment is.
1: Okay. Um, I'm going to dig now from the facetious question or semi-facetious question to something that's pretty central to the book, or at least the early part of the book. You say the risk is the foundation of the modern global economy. And you go into kind of a uh, dialectic between Frank Knight and John Maynard Keyes. And then you say we need to actually move beyond that distinction on that spectrum between the two. So that's a lot to unpack, uh, but we've got time. So uh, if you can take us down that road a bit.
0: Sure. Well, you know, they made this distinction between risk and uncertainty, and that risk was something that you could quantify. You could say there's, you know, X percent prob- prob- probability that this is going to happen. You know, it's a way of trying to assign. Certainty where it may not exist, and of course, as we saw during the subprime rating crisis, you saw these investment-grade subprime mortgage portfolios, uh, which turned out, to, you know, the rating turned out to have nothing to do with reality. So, so yep. there's there's risk, which is this attempt to quantify what's going to happen and it's really what the economy is based on. I mean, it's it's how you price an insurance policy, it's how financial markets are priced. Um it's it's really a basis for for trading things and it's a basis for for pricing the insurance on those you know big transatlantic uh ship uh trips that you know brought supplies and and things between the new world and the old world. So then you have uncertainty, which for them is something that you just can't a number on at all it's like really uncertain and so the finance world talks about the sort of knightian risk that's that you can really control by assigning a number to and the rest of it but the problem is that the rest of us in the real world people who aren't financial professionals um, tend to conflate risk and uncertainty somebody might say you know i'm not comfortable taking risks but what they're really uncomfortable with is the not knowing it's the uncertainty. And so when financial advisors talk with their clients, they need to be much more aware of how big a role uncertainty plays in how most people think about risk.
1: Okay. And when they're sitting with those clients, I mean, I don't know that they, they, I guess they do actually give them these tests, um, including what's known as the big five model, which I, I know quite a, quite a bit about. Uh, that is uh, sometimes called ocean as well, which is openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and what's either dubbed neuroticism if you go with ocean or emotional stability. So it sounds like from the book uh, that there's nothing too definitive as to uh, how we can correlate those those Big Five personality traits and uh, risk taking and so forth. Is is that a fair summary, or there's something more you can? Alice, as to where the where the information seems to, to uh, lean?
0: Well, it's it's one of those things where the answer is it depends. I mean, there's a lot of controversy, <laughs> um, you know, about the possible relationship between, you know, sort of, you know, openness to experience and risk taking, um, and also a lot of controversy around uh, introversion or extroversion. And some of that has to do with the fact that um, risks aren't fixed. There's this sort of subjective component and the objective component. So if you have an introvert and an extrovert going to a party, it's actually not the same risk for each one of them. I mean, the extrovert might be much happier talking to all sorts of new people and meeting them. And for the introvert, it takes a lot more effort. So actually, the introvert's taking more risk going to the same party that the extrovert is. I I, I talk about risk often as sort of a a room full of funhouse mirrors that, that change depending on your perspective and how you how you look at it. And there is one test that I just absolutely love. It's called the risk type compass. And it's, it's based on a lot of the research that went into these big five personality types. And it's, it's based on about a hundred questions that are about the risk decisions that you make. And there are really two axes of these, this compass. One is sort of how calm or how anxious you are in face of a risk. And the other part is your process, how methodical or impulsive, whether you just uh, leap before you look or whether you think about it. And so there are eight different personality types around risk that come out of this. And it's it's a fascinating tool. Now, there's there's a ton of controversy about psychometric tests, which I think all of them you need to take with a grain of salt, but, but that if you're using it properly, it can generate really interesting insights. And and this personality side of, of risk science has become much more important in, for example, financial advisors figuring out what's going on in their clients' heads or boards or big industry where there are lots of safety questions. And that's a real evolution from the way that Financial advisors used to look at your your risk tolerance, your risk perception. I remember my first job where I had a four hundred and one k. They gave me this uh, wheel, uh, where you know what age are you, and your age corresponds to you know this mix of stocks and bonds. And of course, yeah, and you know at a different time, you know stocks might be riskier or bonds might be riskier. Um, So even that definition changes. And there's been a boom, particularly since the Great Financial Crisis in tests around what kind of risk you're willing to take or not, but they tend to be very numbers oriented and very, very focused on the investment themselves. You know, how much are you willing to lose in exchange for the possibility to gain 50%, for example? And so that's focused on the risk itself. Uh, But I think we can do so much more, find so many more powerful insights from these tools, looking at why we take those risks or not, what the things are that we can do to make ourselves more comfortable with a particular risk, or maybe to pull ourselves back from the ledge if we're, we're a little too foolhardy, is is very interesting. You see, people who do a lot of things to 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 study, to understand the information, to to set up rainy day funds and things, those people are going to actually be much more comfortable taking more financial risks than people who don't pay enough attention, who don't have the rainy day fund. And and so how much attention do you pay to the risk actually gives you more freedom in terms of the kinds of good risks that you can take, because that awareness actually changes the nature of the risk at hand. It's, It's like Schrodinger's cat, you know, that the act of observing it Changes the situation, you know you don't know if the cat's yeah. alive or dead until you look at it, and risk is is like that and it's really important to think about our responses much more than most people tend to do because it's really not just the risk at hand, it's the feedback loop between the risk and our responses
1: yeah no, I think that's fascinating and i'm I'm glad that the the field is is advancing. I published an article some years ago now on uh, kind of a behavioral finance journal where I interviewed couples with a battery of questions and I was actually tracing their emotional response using facial coding to see how they reacted and try to understand, you know, what was their relationship to money and investment and risk and so forth. Um, it was a really interesting study. Um, one thing you you had mentioned that I thought was an interesting strand that I had to pursue for a moment. Um, you started getting into all these uh, influences and uh, one, I just thought was interesting that overweight women, but not men, are not risk takers. And then on the other hand, the white males who are risk takers tend to trust institutions and are anti egalitarian. Uh, I found both of those fascinating. Um, what, what can you add to, to those, those little nuggets?
0: You know, gender and risk is so fascinating. In fact, I've got a whole chapter on that. We've got a lot of stereotypes about the differences between men and women. And some of those are related to other factors. Like there's something that sociologists call, quote unquote, the white male effect, which is that, well, white males, as the saying goes, uh, are often more likely to take bigger risks because they see more in it for themselves. So they actually see the risk as smaller than somebody else. And many of them tend to, have you know bigger rainy day funds and, and larger pools of funds to invest. So they've got a wider portfolio that makes any particular risk smaller in the grand th- scheme of things. And there's sure. some other research that shows that a man or a woman in a, quote unquote, gender atypical field, like, say, a, a woman who's a police chief or, or something um, – Face different kinds of risks if they do something wrong, that actually women get punished more than men do if they make a misstep in a job that's seen as quote unquote gender atypical. And what's interesting is that you see also that men in supposedly female fields, like you know, you know, fashion or you know, hair, you look at the big companies, the big names, often tend to be men in those fields. And that's because they have an easier time getting access to investment and funds, other people are more willing to take bets on them because of stereotypes that quote unquote, you know, men are willing to take bigger risks in certain circumstances. But there's other research that shows that uh, venture capitalists will often badly misjudge the risks that women are likely to take and also the likelihood of startups succeeding which actually is higher for women. The difference is that uh, women have a different process. They're more likely to do more homework. They're more likely to turn to outside experts for advice. Um, So it's a very different process. But if you look at the research on men and women and risk, Julie Nelson at University of Boston has done some fascinating work applying new statistical technique to some of the older studies on gender and risk. And she said that there's actually a 95% overlap between men and women. And what you need to do is look at the range of risk preferences, not just the average. So there's a lot of nuance to this, this gender debate, uh, a lot of insight into how testosterone affects risk decisions, how education uh, how knowledge, how experience all play into those things, but also something called stereotype threat, where if you think someone else thinks that you might not take a certain risk or that you're not supposed to, then socially you may be conditioned to take less of a risk. So again, there's this, this wild feedback loop situation.
1: Yeah, no, I, I know from other interviews I've done it's deplorable how little, uh... I guess it tends to be male VCs will invest in female entrepreneurs uh, much lower rates and so forth, less money often. And yet, yeah, it, right in your book, it says female first founders decrease the rate of early failure failure by 19%. Uh, since everyone likes to return on their investment, you would think they would, they would notice that and make some adjustments accordingly. Uh, you mentioned professions and I, that was one place I wanted to go because you have a list at one point, of fields where they're prone to overconfidence. And you mentioned everything from clinical psychologists to physicians, investment bankers, uh, entrepreneurs, lawyers, negotiators. And then I said, okay, who's missing from this list? And I thought it was interesting. I said, okay, well, architects are missing. Uh, Dentists are missing. Uh, Executives seem to be missing. Uh, Am I missing something? Are those, in fact, categories that are less uh, prone to overconfidence?
0: Well, I, I, again, <laughs> sorry for doing this. The answer is somewhat—it uh, depends. But I mean, you know, architects are, are are quite creative, and I think that uh, creativity goes along with looking at various possibilities. Um, executives, there's such a huge range of what kind of executives you're talking about. Uh, there is some research in the book that shows a correlation between executives who make bad personal risk decisions, like the speeding, the drunk driving, the domestic violence, those sort of things, uh, or even big personal financial risks, those ones are much more likely to take unfortunate strategic and financial risks with their companies. So that's fascinating. And and going back to the creativity, actually, uh, there's some research that shows a correlation between creativity and social risk which is the ability to, or the willingness even, to speak up and say the thing that nobody else wants to hear. So that could be a, hey, here's an opportunity we're missing. Hey, our product is becoming obsolete and we need to think differently and we need to get caught up with the times. Or, hey, this big new strategic plan sounds really exciting, but have we thought about XYZ things that could go wrong and how to make sure those things don't go wrong. So that social risk is is very important both for for taking creative risks, pursuing opportunities, the you know, the upside of risk, but also for protecting you against the the downside, the the bad risks that aren't considered as thoroughly as you might hope.
1: Well, I can see how this gets very nuanced. If we go back to gender for a moment. Uh, I think you make the comment in the book that a w- a woman merely to raise her hand in a board meeting, I might be taking a risk in that, you know, it's not something that's often condoned. Uh, If I'm thinking of uh, someone who's uh, a whistleblower, I mean, they may be trying to reduce risk, but they're putting themselves at personal risk uh, depending on the culture of the company and the occasion and the stakes involved to, to bring that up. Um, So, wow. (laughs) It's a, it's a very nuanced field. No wonder it's a, it's a rich book as it is. I I wanted to move something very specific. We were talking earlier about, uh, you know, looking at the risk profile the risk fingerprint of individual investors uh but what if you're in a situation where you got a whole team i'm thinking about mergers and acquisitions now so you got uh, two sets of executive teams sitting down they're trying to get to this deal there's probably a broker so there's a third party involved should one be focused more on the ceo presuming that they have the most power uh does one have to look at the composition of the Of the whole executive team, does one have to get a vantage point on the company culture behind them or that they might have shaped? How does one really assess uh, the whole game of risk and uncertainty in in mergers and acquisitions? And I say that in part because we both know that a lot of these don't work. In fact, the majority of these don't really uh, realize the financial gains intended.
0: Absolutely. The, the, the research is just overwhelming that m as are more likely to destroy value than to create it. And what we see a lot recently is these new, you know, quote unquote, dis- disruptors, you know, the, the buzz, one of the buzzwords of the day, uh, yes, particularly indeed. finance, say, you know, you see all of these big legacy firms buying uh, fintech startups. Uh, these sort of newer companies that where the culture is likely to be more, you know, move fast and break things. You get younger people who've got very different priorities, very different senses of what a good corporate culture is. And so these big companies are buying them even either to push competition out of the way or to hopefully be able to ride that up. And so the question is, you know, one, is the CEO going to stay? And so if, if, the CEO is not going to stay. They're just taking a buyout. And obviously that's not what you look at, but you look at the whole company. And the real question is whether you are going to integrate the acquisition into the bigger culture or not. And if the bigger company is this huge bureaucracy where people have always done things a certain way, you're going to get a huge clash with the acquired firm, the younger, more dynamic firm, and so in some cases, it probably makes more sense to to let that firm continue to have the autonomy that they had. Uh, so it's 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 a very very important part of the cultural aspect of M and A, which of course uh, you know business school professors have looked at as case studies for years and years, but haven't paid. Quite as much attention as I think they they should and could to this risk element. What's the risk culture of the company that you're buying and of the company that's that's doing the purchase, and can they be made to work together? And if not, then you know give the acquired company a, a longer leash than you might otherwise.
1: Yeah, no. Peter Drucker long ago famously said, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Uh, it's amazing to me how little they pay attention to what I guess I'll call the the people element or the culture element uh, in these deals. Um, I want to switch to generations for a moment. We know millennials uh, and even Gen Z at this point, which is entering the workforce, uh, saddled with student debts, uh, knowing that the gig economy is growing. Are they more inclined, less inclined to risk? I'm, I'm sure listeners would be curious on that front.
0: Well, I think it's that they define risk differently. Yeah, you see all these headlines: "Oh, millennials risk averse, Gen Z risk averse," but they really talk about it differently. I spoke with this one woman who had—well, uh, she was actually in her senior year when I talked to her. She's since graduated, and she was talking about, you know, risks, risks of, of burnout, talking about the importance of being part of a team. Once she picked her job. Uh, the importance of a job being someplace where she could grow and and move forward. And I thought, man, I wish I had thought to ask myself those questions when I was her age, because <laughs> it would have saved me a whole lot of grief. And I'm so glad that younger generations are, are asking themselves those kinds of questions because they're so important, and I also talked to a financial advisor who works uh, with a lot of millennials and Gen Z, and he said, "Well, what's what's the risk? You know, if you've got a student loan, you're paying a, a fairly high rate. I don't know what it is now, but I think it was like seven and three quarters when I graduated." He says, "You know, you're paying this, and by paying it down, you get this 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 you know assumed rate of return of." whatever the interest rate that you're not paying anymore. And you see stock markets that are in a bubble. They've gone up an astronomical amount. You don't have a rainy day fund. And yep. that's a very different risk calculation from a generation ago when people didn't have nearly as much student debt, when you know markets weren't necessarily at this bubble state that they're in now. And so it's a different thought process. It's a matter of the risks in front of you being very different, you Again, this this fun house mirror phenomenon, and so I think a lot of of Gen Z and millennials, you know, they they went through the great financial crisis. They've been going through what's going on right now, and they're much more aware. They're considering things that other generations may not have had to. But that doesn't make them more risk averse. It makes them risk aware and risk savvy. And and actually, every every time someone says the the term risk averse my head wants to explode because I, I think it's it's generally pejorative and it's it's not useful and it's not usually applied accurately because it doesn't take into account this gap between your perception of risk and the nature of the risk at hand.
1: You know, risk savvy, I think is a wonderful term. I, I think we should uh, push that one forward and retire the other perhaps.
0: I'm all for um, it. Okay.
1: Well, I got one more question before we close here. Um, You make the statement at one point, and I don't disagree with it. You said the degree of likelihood and the size of potential impact are two of the biggest lies we tell ourselves. Um, I think human beings tell themselves a lot of lies um, to get through our day. Um, We're not necessarily as risk-savvy as we'd like to be, but uh, we're moving that direction, hopefully. What are some of the other lies we tell ourselves, and what are their implications? I mean, surely lies we tell ourselves uh, is a is a rich fountain of opportunities to put yourself into trouble.
0: Well, here's the oh, it's just the flu. That's one we've heard a lot. <laughs> um, but you know, we really fool ourselves about the the level of our power to do something. You know, if okay. if we don't like the solution, we're like, oh, well, I can't make any any impact anyway. You know, climate change. You hear that way too. Often, and the other part is that there is this sort of objective risk. There's there's a new book by uh, Daniel Kahneman and, and colleagues called Noise, where it talks about you know, this idea of you know this is really what the risk is, and everything else is noise, all these other influences. And I couldn't disagree more. I mean, there's there's a place for recognizing that our emotions and other experiences, our whole risk fingerprint, are part of what an ideal risk level is, and that that. Risk is not just a fixed thing. The same amount of risk might be appropriate for one person and not another. So we need to recognize that emotion plays a role and find ways to recognize that in, in a healthy way, not giving over it to, to it completely, but also not pretending that it's not a factor.
1: Okay. Um, well, I, I would urge listeners to give this book a try. Uh, because it is a very nuanced and and detailed understanding of all of the things going on here. Uh, You know, risk and uncertainty, how we cope with anxiety. These these are central issues in life. As Michelle has said, you know, we make all sorts of decisions every day and uh, risk is always an element in those. Uh, So I want to thank you, Michelle, so much for your time. This has been episode number 78, Decoding Your Risk Fingerprint. My guest, Michelle Wooker, her book is You Are What You Risk, new art and science of navigating an uncertain world. If you enjoyed today's show, please give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can check out other episodes by going to my company's website at the obligatory three W's and SensoryLogic.com, or go to the new books network, type in Dan Hill's EQ spotlight, and you can see other guests I've had over the past year and change. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an epigram. In this case, with all these famous quotes on risk and uncertainty, I chose this one from the Roman orator Cicero, who said, To make a mistake is only human. To persist in a mistake is idiotic. Until next time, be kind and stay safe.